Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for his life and his ministry. We thank you for his intention to go to the cross. And we thank you that in humility he conquered sin and death and evil. That even though the world was looking for a conqueror who would rise up like David and establish a throne and a kingdom on earth, we thank you that Jesus, by giving his life, conquered all things and did establish an everlasting throne, uh, but that it came through shedding his own blood and the humility of the crucifixion. And we thank you that he rose from the dead. I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would be blessed and encouraged by what we find here. I pray that we would be pierced to the heart and convicted and that we would Put into practice the things that we discuss. And so bless our time, lead us, and guide us in truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are in Mark chapter 10, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 13. And we're going to talk about little kids, so I'm glad there's so many of you here with us today. I know, right here. It's great. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. So it says, uh, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Uh, we live in a culture that's a little bit backwards in this, where we've got a problem where um, many parents almost worship their kids. They, they maybe uh, go too far in accommodating their children. But through most of human history, you know, children were at the margins of society, right? They, they were not supposed to be around an important person like this. They were supposed to be in their place, you know, on the side. And this is just a beautiful picture of Jesus, um, where he is welcoming to these little kids. And this is actually the third illustration in quite a short period of time where Jesus references little kids in his teaching. So if you go back to chapter 9, verse 36, and again in chapter 9, verse 42, now we've got another picture where we see Jesus just embracing and welcoming the children. Um, if, if Jesus is being literal here, so look at verse 14. When he says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Hi, welcome. Hello. Perfect timing. We were just talking about little children and how Jesus loves them and welcomes them. Come on in. There's some seats over here. You can move these desks around. Just um, at the end, make sure you put them back in, in order. <coughs> Okay, so verse 13, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Okay, so um, Jesus is often 
wise enough to speak on a couple of different levels, okay? So right here, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. He's obviously referring to these particular little children, that they should come to him. But when he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, okay? If he is being literal here, and we are to understand him as saying, little kids receive the kingdom of God, then we might have something like an argument for an age of accountability. Does anybody want to define what that argument for the age of accountability is? Anybody think they know? The point at which you can understand enough to make a decision. Yes. So there are some people that would argue, you know, a two-year-old baby ends up in heaven if it dies because they don't understand morality, right and wrong. Uh, they can't make a decision to place their faith in Jesus. So there's some age at which you begin to understand these things and you become accountable for them. Um, I don't personally hold that position, although I think there are some vague notions that maybe you can make an argument from that, uh, from some Old Testament passages in the Bible. And maybe a passage like this, right? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Um, but I think what we have here is just an illustration, right? Jesus is using children to illustrate the reality of the kingdom of God. He does this with all kinds of things. He says, look at the birds. They illustrate the kingdom of God. Look at the flowers. You, from them, you can learn a lesson about the kingdom of God, right? That God takes care of his creation. And so I think what Jesus is illustrating here is that uh, to enter the kingdom of God requires humility, which is exemplified by children. And we've talked about this in class, right? Um, most kids, when they're living in functional, healthy families, they don't worry about food. They don't worry about clothes. They understand that these things will be provided for them. They're willing to embrace their codependency, right? My, my little daughter, even though she's 10 at this point, she feels no shame saying, Daddy, can you get me a cup? right? Because she can't do it herself. Um, you know, a grown adult is probably going to have a little bit more pride and think that they can do these things on their own. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's giving, an, giving us an illustration of the kingdom of God. In order for you to come to God, you must have the kind of humility that says, I'm codependent on you, God. I cannot do this apart from you. I need you. I surrender myself into your care. So any, anybody want to, would anybody take the argument of an age of accountability for verse 14? Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I don't think an age per se, but I would say an understanding. Because if you think, you know, there are adults with disabilities too, you know, they may not be able to be capable of of understanding that either, yeah. you know, so it, it depends on, on your level of understanding. Yeah. And I don't think that God looks at people and has those kind of same expectations of them. You know, like if you're not capable of understanding, why would he hold you that and be like, well, you never accepted me because you didn't understand, so you're going to hell. Yeah, this is a, this is a, a difficult discussion, yeah. right? So... And we have to say everything that the Bible says about these things, right? So Romans chapter 3 says that no one is righteous. No one um, comes to God. No one understands. No one seeks it, right? So man in his natural state, and, and again, Romans talks about this in chapters 5 and 6, that because we're 
children of Adam, we are by nature fallen and broken, right? And yet we also know the mercy of God, right? I mean, I, uh, my wife and I, we lost uh, a baby when she was 14 weeks pregnant, and that was a painful thing. And, um, you know, that, that child never had an opportunity to grow up and place their faith in Christ. And, and I would like to presume upon the mercy of God that because that opportunity was never given, that, um, you know, that child is, is with God. The difficulty is I can't, I can't find a verse that says that, you yeah. know. So is there an age of accountability? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that the Bible gives us a verse that says we can say that. But we do know that the Bible teaches that God is merciful. Yeah. Yes, Don. Yeah, and you get an interesting picture in the Old Testament too, where you have um, when when Israel comes out of Egypt and they're wandering in the desert, and then they send spies into the Promised Land, and they determine that they shouldn't go into the Promised Land because the people there are too scary, and they, you know, they'll lose this fight. And God gives them this consequence that you'll spend forty years wandering in the wilderness then because of your lack of faith. He says, until everyone in this generation dies off, and he gives an age, everyone 20 years old and older, right? So that's interesting, right? Those under 20 weren't accountable for that lack of faith that that older generation displayed. Now, again, none of these are like a very clear-cut argument for this thing called an age of accountability. I'll give you just another example close to what you were talking about, Tiffany. I have a friend and his sister is severely mentally handicapped. I mean, just no cognitive abilities whatsoever. Um, What do we think God does with something like that? Um, You know, again, I I would take the position position that I would presume upon the mercy of God. Uh, But scripture is also very clear. Nobody comes to the Father except through Christ. Um, And Jesus said, repent and believe. So... Look, these are some things that we also need to approach God with humility, right? The point of this passage is, in order to come to God, you must come with the kind of humility and codependence that a child has. That is on you, right? So we can talk hypothetically or theoretically about these cases over here. The question is, you can understand and you're here, and so will you come to God with that kind of humility? And uh, let's transition a little bit. Mark also highlights the tenderness of Jesus here. Isn't this just a beautiful picture? I mean, Jesus, yeah, yeah. You want to share a couple? Yeah, please. 
I actually take the view of uh, the age of accountability, although it's not, um, there's like no age that's mentioned anywhere, so we can just see the passages and, and uh, I, I take the view that uh, it depends on everyone and God knows their maturity level. Yeah. The passages that I found that were, uh, the one you mentioned, 20 year old, uh, but there's also uh, in Job, uh, God's, uh, Job says, um, if I was, if I was, uh, if I had died, uh, before my birth, I would be at rest. Mm. And then, so that's clearly in the Bible, when you are in heaven, you are at rest, and then you are in hell, you are in eternal torment, never resting. Right. Um, and then there is David, when he loses his young uh, uh, child as a punishment uh, by God for adultery. Yeah. Um, as soon as the child is, is about to die, he's, he's fasting, he's, uh, he's praying, he, he is, he's in misery. And, and then as soon as the child dies, he cleans up himself and he proceeds to live. And someone comes and says, what's going on? Like now he died and you, you live as if, you know. And he said, um, he will not come back to me, but I will come to him. Yeah. And we know that David is a man after God's own heart. Yeah. Therefore David is in heaven. It's kind of all over the Bible. So then it means that this child who died, it must be that he was in heaven. Yeah. Uh, and in Ecclesiastes, it also says that the, the one who dies at a young age is, is better than a king who lives like a hundred, hundreds of years. And, and then there's the passage in, in the, um, um, the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I think, uh, of course, there this whole section is about salvation. But yeah. the literal piece of being poor in spirit, where you just don't understand things, either because you're mentally ill or you're a child, uh, literally you just don't poor right. in spirit. <clears throat> then the application of the, you know, the spiritual part of being poor in spirit when you become a Christian. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the literal part must be true, so that the analogy would be true as well. So I think I think those things, you know, they point to uh, to that. The other thing is that, um, and I, I learned that from MacArthur. Um, so he basically said, uh, there are tribes in the earth that have never heard the gospel. But Jesus said that uh, there will be men from every tribe and tongue and, and nations. And because, uh, you know, that's the case, he says that all those kids that were just burned because of false religion or died, or um, they are all in heaven. Mm -hmm. and it populates heaven as, as Satan destroys the world. You know, it populates heaven. Uh, and so where sin abounds, grace abounds even yeah. more. Yeah. Uh, so those are the, the thoughts that I, that I have about that. And I think it's a consolation, but uh, I don't think we have any age, so it will depend on everyone. So I, I don't presume, yeah. I just press on right. the gospel, but uh, I believe at some point they become they become accountable and before that they will. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, Ron, you might come back to what you were talking about, the, the severely mentally handicapped person, and you're saying to presume upon the grace of, Jesus, of uh, uh, God's mercy. Um, but also you're saying that he says, whoever does not receive does not go into the kingdom. Yeah. But I think maybe specifically in this passage in, in verse 15, when he's saying whoever does not receive like a child, yeah. He's speaking to these people. I, I don't think that's like necessarily a cut and dried uh, commandment that you must receive to be in the kingdom. Um, I think this is a statement for the, the disbelief that's abounding in this setting. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So I think that Jesus is giving us instruction about the kingdom of God, right? And what does it take to enter the kingdom of God? It's that you you show the same kind of childlike humility that that we see in the, the children coming to Jesus. Um, so, yeah, what that looks like in every particular instance, we don't necessarily know. Um, I guess here's one thing that I, I just want to be super clear on. And Jonas, I actually agree with you in everything that you said. I hope the audio recording could hear that. You know, that, that uh, man, we, when we get to heaven, we will just be blown away by the depth of God's mercy. But here's something theologically that you need to understand. God is under no obligation to bring any child or person into his kingdom. Does that make sense? This is difficult. We don't like this idea. He's God. The Bible teaches man is sinful from Adam's sin. And therefore, it would be perfectly just for God to put any person in hell. Okay? Now, I realize that's a tough theological thing for us to swallow. But, um, but that's from a human perspective. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's it's tough for us to swallow because we're not God. We right. don't have his understanding. It says only God knows the heart. Right. So God is, and he, and he created us. Yeah. You know, if we create something, we have the expectation that we can choose to destroy what we create. Yeah. You know, man does it all the time, even right. with things we don't create. Yeah. God created us, yeah. so therefore it's his decision yes. Yes. To, to choose to save or destroy. Yes. And so there, I think, I think we can presume upon his mercy, and I think we should, because he's merciful, yeah. right? And we should praise him and honor him for that. I just don't ever want people to get this idea that, like... Well, I really think God should do it this way, and therefore, you know, little kids will be in heaven. Well, it needs to be a biblical, biblically faithful argument like Jonas was offering us. It doesn't get to just be, I feel like it should be this way, okay? Um, okay, but let's, let's talk about God's mercy here because look at the tenderness of Jesus. Jesus takes these children into his arms. He blesses them. He, he lays his hands on them. This is such a beautiful picture. He doesn't say, get away from me. I'm a busy, important guy. Don't you know who I am? I've got better things to do than give you my time and attention. And of course, this is a beautifully affectionate form of touch that is wholly above reproach. It's within the bounds of what is appropriate between a grown man and a child, right? Um, unfortunately, because of the culture that we live in, this kind of thing is, is pretty rare. Um, you know, we just had a whole uh, training yesterday for our children's ministry about what kinds of touch between adults and children is appropriate because we run a children's ministry here. And unfortunately, tragically, there, this is both tragic and necessary. Let's put it in those terms. It's tragic because touch has become so hyper-sexualized in our culture, there's hardly any touch outside of immediate family that is um, healthy and appropriate and permissible in our culture. So for example, Paul ends one of his letters by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, we definitely don't show that kind of physical affection with one another at church because in a culture that's hyper-sexualized, that's uh, a challenging thing to do. And, and there is also some necessity to this, right? Because sexual perversion is so present in our culture that it's increasingly dangerous for us to display affection in these terms uh, because it might lead to something inappropriate or something that's misunderstood. 
But Jesus doesn't have any difficulty with this, right? He's God. He's perfect. He's man. He blesses these children uh, by showing them this physical affection that's perfectly appropriate, divinely beautiful. Um, so maybe there's something for us to learn from this. Um, yeah. I think as Christians, we should, yeah, we should, we should love children. Children should be embraced. They should be part of our culture. Like, I love the fact that we're in an adult Sunday school class and half the room is little kids. I think that that's beautiful. Okay, one other thing on this scene. Uh, Jesus is opposed to the apostles um, making any kind of hindrance to the children coming to him. Um, you know, they, they, so it says, uh, when Jesus saw it, that is the disciples rebuking the kids and trying to prevent them from coming to him, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Moving just beyond the, the uh, aspect of children, I think it's worth occasionally asking ourselves, is my behavior acting as a hindrance to anybody coming to Jesus? Is the way that I speak to people, the way that I treat people, the way that I behave, the things that I do, does it in any way give an indication to people that observe me that the Jesus I serve is inhospitable, unwelcoming, unkind? Does that make sense? Okay. Any last questions on that little scene? Otherwise, we'll read on. Or comments, concerns. You think it could? No, I say, I said no. Oh, this okay. Particular one is a Yeah. But uh, so I totally agree with you that it would be uh, more about uh, humility of the hurt for even an adult. Um, but also <coughs> might be uh, yeah, yeah. So this is this is an important question. Just as we read the teachings of Jesus, we have to think very carefully about this, right? You know, how is Jesus maybe using this particular moment to illustrate something about the kingdom of God, right? And and of course, there, there are people that that say like they're they they approach the Bible as very rigid literalists, and I would actually put myself in that category. But we need to think carefully about how Jesus is teaching. You know, is he saying, is he saying kids enter the kingdom of God because of their humility? Or is he saying the kingdom of God requires the kind of humility that we see in a child, right? Those are very different things. And by thinking close, you know, carefully about it, we can, I think, discern that. Um, all right, verses 17 through 31. <clears throat> and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That's impressive, <laughs> if that's true. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, 
Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's just stop there for one second. Uh, I've said as we've gone through Mark that Mark has an intention for the way that he organizes his teaching. And so it's worth asking, how does this scene connect to what came before? Right? And I think what you see here is a man who does not come to Jesus with the kind of humility that a child might exemplify. He thinks that his money gives him self-sufficiency and his righteousness gives him self-sufficiency. And yet, look at, look at what uh, verse 21 says. Uh, Jesus, looking at him, loved him, right? Even this man who does not show the kind of humility and codependence that a child would, Jesus still loves this man. That's powerful. And, um, you know, I, I guess after coming out of the teaching about little kids, here we get sort of a, a, an inverse picture, right? Here's a guy who has an opportunity to, like a child, say, I will trust you, Jesus, more than my own self-righteousness or my riches. And yet, instead, he, he doesn't make that decision. Uh, let me finish reading this little section and then we'll, we'll work through more of this. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Um, let me remind you that as an American, making the kind of money that you make, living in the kind of house that you live in, you may compare yourself to somebody like Bill Gates or Elon Musk and say, well, I'm not a rich person. But compared to about 95% of the rest of the world, you are in the category of the wealthy person. Okay? So let's not forget that. And the disciples were amazed, verse 24, at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, so uh, verse 17 shows us that Jesus gets interrupted. He was often getting interrupted. Um, I think I've mentioned this as we've made our way through Mark, but as you read the Gospels a lot, uh, many times you will see this phrase, and on the way, or along the way, this scene unfolds, right? So Jesus was very eager to interrupt what he was doing in order to meet the needs of people and minister to them. And this interruption starts out pretty good. Verse 17, I think we can learn from how it starts. The man runs up. Right? Mark records that this man is running. There's a sense of urgency. And we should be urgent in our approach to Jesus. Right? If you know that you need to go to Jesus, don't dilly-dally. Don't 
waste your time. Don't try to get things sorted out first. Just run to him. The man, it says, knelt before Jesus. We should humbly submit ourselves to Jesus, right? We may not need to necessarily physically kneel, but our posture should be lowly before him. The man honors Jesus. He says he calls him good teacher, right? He agrees that Jesus is a man of wisdom and knowledge and truth. And so we too should honor Jesus. And the man asks a question looking for Jesus. He doesn't come to instruct Jesus. He comes to learn from Jesus. And we should look to Christ for that same sort of wisdom. And his question concerns significant things. He doesn't come running to Jesus to say, Jesus, what should I have for lunch today? Although I guess that's a fine question, but he comes asking a much bigger question, right? He comes asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's got eternal things in mind. And so our thoughts should also be directed to eternal things. But then the motivation is revealed to be all wrong. Um, Because we see that despite all of these humble actions, I think the motivation here is really that this man is seeking to be justified. He has a picture of himself already, that he is good and he is righteous. I think what he expects at the end of his question is Jesus to say, young man, you're already blessed. I already, you know, it's clear you already have eternal life. And so don't worry about it anymore. Um, look, at, look with me at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. Because there's another little phrase in here that I find interesting. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer, so that's a teacher of the law, an expert in the law, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Very similar kind of question, right? In fact, it's basically the same question. Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Then look at verse 29. But the man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Right? The the point here is that this man and his question about eternal life is not really about the answer that Jesus will give, but the preconceived notion this man has, that he's already worthy of this eternal life, right? And so I think when we go back to Mark chapter 10 with this rich young man, we've got a similar kind of problem. The man has come to Jesus expecting that Jesus will say to him, Actually, young man, I can tell you are worthy of the kingdom of God already. He assumes that he must be worthy. Now, I want to add something on here that is a pervasive misconception that's actually, it's, it's run through most of human history. You even still see it today, although it takes a little bit of a different nuance, which is that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. 
Through almost all of human history, in almost every culture, whatever your conception of God, the deity was, if you were a wealthy person, most people believed that you were wealthy because God was pleased with you and he had poured out his blessing on you. And one of the things that Jesus is constantly tearing down is this notion that wealth equals the divine blessing. Because it doesn't, right? Because Jesus doesn't say to this man, look, you're already wealthy and look, you've already obeyed the law. Therefore, you're already blessed. You must be in the kingdom of God. And I suspect this man thought, thought he would hear Jesus say, you've done well, you're a good person and that's why you are so wealthy. And instead what Jesus says is, your wealth is worthless, go give it away. It doesn't mean anything. It's not a sign that you're blessed in the eyes of God. Maybe it's a sign that you're blessed in the eyes of man, but that's not how God perceives his divine economy. Okay, does that make sense? And you still sort of hear this today. You know, there was a there was a best-selling book. Uh, it was probably a decade and decade ago now called um, "The Secret," and the the concept of this book was that you can unlock this secret so that the universe will bless you with everything that you desire, right? And 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 even though there's no conception of God, it's secular. The idea is what is blessing? It's riches and all these things that you dream up that you can have. Right. Well, a decade ago, do you remember there was that other book? It was like the prayer of something. The prayer of Jabez. Yeah. yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. It was similar very much from a, a Christian perspective. A name yep. it and claim it. You know. Uh huh. If if you're if you're living your life for God, then you'll be blessed and you'll be wealthy and yeah. nothing bad will ever happen to you. Right. And and you still see this pushed by these prosperity teachers, right? <laughs> that um, that if God really is pleased with you, then you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Yep. Right. And. Um, that's obviously not the case. We've spent quite a bit of time in Mark talking about that as well as we've made our way through it. Was there another comment about that over here? No, no okay. I just see prosperity. Yeah. Of course, if you're really, really, truly living for God and like totally on fire, you're going to be living in some thatch hut in some third world country, far from prosperity. Potentially, potentially. This man sees it. The, the thing is, well, this is another part of this particular uh, interaction that we need to think through. Is Jesus giving a command for all Christians in all times, in all places, go sell everything that you have and you'll be blessed? No, what Jesus always does is he gets to the idol at your heart, right? So actually, the missionary who thinks, I need to go live in a thatch hut and then God will be pleased with me and I will get to do something great and I will be great by doing that. God's actually probably going to say, why don't you go live in New York City in a high-rise apartment and, you know, be wealthy. And that wasn't the direction I was going with that. Okay, okay. The, the point is, whatever the idol is, that's what Jesus is concerned with removing. And it can look like all kinds of things. It can look like power. It can look like beauty. It can look like self-sacrifice. It can look like religious adherence. It can be like your children. Yeah, it could be your children. Marriage, yes. Yeah, it could be anything, right? Or um, Jesus saying, all these things that you have here on earth are nothing. Yes. Yeah, are nothing. Yes. It's, it's all perishable. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, and so for some people, they, they should. They should go live in the thatch hut and serve God in that way. And for other people, they should go 
you know, be an attorney in New York City and serve God in that way. And for other people, they should be pastors. And for other people, they should be plumbers. Like, it, it, it just, God wants to remove that idol, whatever it is, at the center of your heart. Um, man, for some people, God's, God is going to say, don't be a pastor because that's your idol, right? Your identity would be wrapped up in what you would do. Okay. Uh, ver- verse 18 is a hyper-condensed teaching about the nature of God and man. As well as the... Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You no, I love it. 18, I had a question. Do you know if the Greek uses the word inherit? Inheritance? I thought it was interesting, that word, too. Both yeah. of them mention that word. Okay. Of inherit instead of, you know, what do I need to do to to, to be saved or to have exactly. salvation? They want to inherit it. Yeah. Mm. You know? I, I yeah. It's like an inheritance is something you receive, and half the time you have nothing to do with it. Yeah. You know, no, and yet like, they're putting forth it's something. It's yes, yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah. Um, yeah, that word hit me too. <laughs> well, there is the thing that in ancient times the inheritance was not like now. I.e., now you inherit or your your parents die. Yeah. Uh, in biblical times, oftentimes you would get uh, out of your inheritance or a lot of your inheritance when you were young, so you could do something great with your life, like start a business or do something, as opposed to you know later on it's kind of too late. Maybe. Your life is already you know. So there's that too. Like if you're a good kid, then when it's about time, maybe you can get some. Okay, I wonder maybe, why the problem Maybe that's son, not the answer, but you know, I have why he got to that early. particular question. Yeah. Just some insights. Well, yeah, and that, that's helpful. And here's another part of this that might touch on what you're asking <laughs> is, uh, this is a young man. So where has he got his wealth from? It's probably come from his family, right? And he's not satisfied. He wants more. And he should want he should want the inheritance of eternal life, but I think some of the suggestion here is I've already got that inheritance. I'm I'm eager for something greater, right? Um, and uh, and yet he doesn't actually want it. Not if it's going to come at any real sacrifice, which which is leads me to the the reason you know the the point about him being uh, young. Um, yeah. think there are many times where Jesus is sarcastic right it's an interesting teaching and rhetorical device um, yeah that was a good question thank you okay so verse 18 here we have this hyper condensed condensed teaching about the nature of God and man as well as the nature of Jesus Christ who is the God man right so Jesus says why do you call me good no one is good except God alone. You could write a book on just that, those two sentences, okay? So this rich man, this, this rich man can see from the life and deeds and teaching of Jesus 
that Jesus is good. He, he's applying common sense to observe Christ, and it's obvious. And um, look, we, we've touched on this as we've gone through Mark as well. We live in a culture that says nothing is obvious, right? It, it wants to obscure and, and apply um, relativism as if there's no th there are nothing, no things that are just clear and obvious. The idea of common sense. And uh, the Bible would totally repudiate that idea. Some things are very obvious, right? What is good and what is evil is generally very obvious. And Jesus clears up a terrible misunderstanding that runs rampant in the minds of men here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Romans chapter 3, we already talked about this. Paul gives this very tragic assessment of the human condition. No one is good. No one is righteous. There's nobody who seeks after God. Right? Man in his fallen condition is an enemy with God. He's suspicious of God. He doesn't like God. And so only God is good. And God then is the standard by which all men must judge what is good. Right? No man is good. God is good. Therefore, only what corresponds with God is what is good. And at the same time, Jesus does not deny that he is good. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Okay, so thus Jesus proves himself to be God. So this is what's called a, I, I, well, I'm going to give you what's called a logical syllogism. Okay, and it sounds like this. Only God is good. Jesus is good. Therefore, Jesus is God. Right? Only God is good. Jesus is good. Therefore, Jesus is God. And, uh, and I think this man should have known that, right? That should have been obvious to him. All of that, think about all of that teaching crammed into just one, one question and one answer, right? One sentence. Amazing. And then verse 19 is also a hyper-condensed teaching because in giving these commands, uh, Jesus is not giving the complete list of everything that this man must do. What's he doing? What's he referring to? Yeah, he's giving a summary of the whole law, right? He's saying to this man, well, here's some things that you should be doing. These things are part of the law. You should be keeping the law. And, um, you know, Paul's going to pick up on this when he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Man, I can't think of the exact reference, but it's Romans five or six as well. So this man thinks he is justified by works of the law and, uh, and he's not because even though he thinks he's done these things, he's not done them with perfection. And this man's reply almost seems to be to kind of just like poo-poo the law. He's like, yeah, 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 all right, I did that, Jesus. I'm looking for something more. I want what's beyond the law. I want something greater than the law. And uh, I think in doing this, he betrays his self-righteousness and his lack of sincerity. Um, I think he acknowledges him as a good teacher, but not as like God. Like, sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because if he would have acknowledged that he was God, then he would have known that if he compares himself with God, he would always come short. Yes. 
Absolutely. And we see that in the 20 because he took the good off. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe you're not so good because I don't really like the things that you're telling me. All right, and then verse 21, Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Now, is the one thing really that he needs to go get rid of his possessions? What is the one thing that this man lacks? To know that he's not good. I would go beyond even that. Yeah, I, love of God, right? He lacks the, the, the new heart. He lacks a heart that's really in it for God and not for himself. Now, these things are all evidence of the one thing that he lacks. But the fact of the matter is the guy could have gone and sold everything and walked away with all kinds of self-righteousness and thought, now, now I got it. Now I'm really awesome. So what he lacks is, is a heart that is actually the heart of God, let's say. So I don't think we're dealing with merely materialism and riches here. We're dealing with all of the identity stuff that gets tied up with wealth potentially or just all of the identity stuff that comes between us and God you know it could be things like security achievement honor success prestige and for us it does present us with a question do we believe that the treasure of heaven is greater than all the other treasure that we might find in this life yes yes amen right yes and again not merely material treasure but the praise of man the achievement, you know, your name on a plaque on a wall on some big fancy building. Um, all the different things that people put their identity, their self-worth into. Now, look at, uh, <clears throat> look at the response of the man, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying. He didn't get what he expected from this good teacher, right? Who gets demoted to just a teacher. And so he's disheartened. He goes away sorrowful, for he has great possessions. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um... We as Christians need to think about the expression of sorrow. Um, because this man is not sorrowful that he has come up short. He's sorrowful that he can't get everything that he wants without an easy path. Yeah, my, mine actually says he left grieving. Grieving. Right. Yeah, I and mean, when you think of grieving, you think of somebody dying. Yeah, yeah. And we're usually very impressed by people's grief and sorrow. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7 gives us a, a look at what godly grief looks like, okay? So we'll pick up in verse 8. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. 
Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Okay, so there was some back and forth between Paul and the church in Corinth. You know, maybe we, we get an idea of what it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 regarding a man who needed discipline and it was painful for the church. We don't know exactly. There's some letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we don't have. Um, but the, the point here is Paul gave them some command and it was heavy for them and it grieved them. And what Paul says is, I am sad that this was heavy for you, but I'm not sad at the outcome. Okay, does that make sense? I made you grieve with my letter. I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that it grieved you. Like, Paul doesn't get any joy out of making them grieve. And yet, he knows that it's good for them. Okay, so let's read on. Verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So the, the rich man was filled with grief, but not to the point of repenting, right? For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, this rich man thought that giving up his treasure would be loss. Those who grieve and repent realize that whatever it is that they're giving up is no loss. Does that make sense? Okay, so literally they're willing to do whatever it takes to obey Jesus and honor him. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I mean, does anybody in this room who truly loves Jesus want to go back to whatever life you were living before Christ? Like, does any of that stuff appeal to you? Do you think it's greater than what you've received? No, right? So godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So this rich man felt a worldly grief, and it would lead him to death, but it wasn't grief sufficient to lead him to bow before Christ, the giver of life. Verse 11, so what does this grief look like? For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Right? I mean, if this man felt godly grief, I think he would have grabbed the person nearest to him and said, hey, take a letter back to my house, you know, my servants, and tell them to just sell all the stuff. I don't even need to go back. I found something greater. Right? Um, sort of like the man who finds the treasure in the field and sells everything that he has to buy the field to get the treasure. So we should look closely at the kind of grief that people express when it comes to their repentance to see whether it's sincere, whether it has this level of reproach associated with it. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other thoughts or questions or comments on that? Worldly sorrow can be very deceptive. I see this quite a bit even in like marriage counseling, you know, where one of the spouses will be like, well, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way. That is not repentance, and uh, we shouldn't accept that as a kind of sincere apology, right? Okay. Uh, we got a couple more minutes. Verse 23. Um, 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. So this is that, that misconception that wealth means God approves of your life. They're, they're amazed because they're like, wait a second, Jesus, you're saying that actually people can be wealthy and God can be unhappy with them? And Jesus is saying yes. And they're like shocked by this teaching. This is new to them. There is no relationship between wealth and God's favor. So the disciples are shocked. Um, and, uh, and Jesus says it's going to be difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Why is wealth in particular a barrier to people entering the kingdom of God? Because you trust in that instead of God. Yeah, exactly. Is that what you were going to say, Corey? I was going to say that because they think it's theirs. Ah, okay. They think they own it and it's... Sure. Same idea, Yeah. different aspects. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that connects back to the picture of the kids, right? Mm -hmm. The the code of... Wealth gives you this sense of independence. I don't need help. I don't need anything. I got this. I can do it. You know, I mean, if you were to go sit down with a guy like Bill Gates and be like, what do you need? What would he say to that? Nothing. Like, I can buy anything I want. Anything that I need is at the end of my fingertips. Right? And the Bible said, what profit the man if he gained the whole world and lost yeah. his own soul? Yeah, yeah. So Jesus flips the whole thing around. He says, actually, it's really hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God because they don't have that childlike dependence that is needed to come to God in humility. And in this world, like people want to be independent. So it's, I think the message of the gospel is in that sense can be hard for some because we're in a world where everything is about being independent, be your own self. Yeah. Do what you, you know, everything is about you, you, you. And yeah. all of a sudden it's like, well, you need to depend on God. Like what? Right. Right. Yeah. We even have a word for this. Independently wealthy. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and it's an ideal that many people aspire to. And I'm not saying it's bad to be independently wealthy. I'm just saying the, the wealth is irrelevant. It's not about money at all. It's just about the heart posture before God. Okay, that's what matters. In fact, he says that in the next verse where he leaves out the wealthy part. He says, when he reiterates, he says, it's hard to get into the kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, right? Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the disciples are amazed at this, verse 24, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Um, you know, I think the disciples thought that actually it's not that hard to enter the kingdom of God, right? All you got to do is be a Jew, or all you got to do is kind of keep the law and kind of keep the law, right? Like, nobody's perfect. Um, and, and Jesus destroys that misconception that it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God, right? Look at verse 27. With man, it's impossible. Now, in between there, we get this, uh, this picture of the eye of the needle. How many of you have heard that the eye of the needle was this door in the wall of Jerusalem and you had to take all the stuff off the camel so the camel could get down on its knees? Totally bogus. Really? Totally bogus. Someone at some point in history just made all of that up. There is no, I know, I was shocked when I found that out too. There is no 
attestation in the first millennium of church history that there was any gate like that in the wall of Jerusalem. Okay? But it makes perfect sense why somebody would make that up. Because the teaching of Jesus is difficult and we want to make it easier, right? It's kind of a weird analogy. The camel can squeeze through the gate. You just got to take off all of the hindrances and get on its knees and then it can shimmy through. No, Jesus is intentionally being ridiculously hyperbolic here. Think of the head of a needle and think of a camel, squeeze it through and you can enter the kingdom of God. Why does he teach like that? Because you cannot do it. That's the point. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think the disciples would have been standing there going, what in the world is this man talking about? Right? They would have been shocked. And, uh, and I know almost everybody's heard that illustration of the camel at some point. And, and what it does is it takes the edge off of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it is impossible for you to do this. That's the bad news. But the good news is, verse 27, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. God could take a camel and squeeze it through the eye of a needle if he wanted to do that. He, he could do it. Uh, we should probably end on that note. So we'll have to pick up there next time. Um, yeah, the point is man cannot save himself. Yeah, Jonas. Yeah, exactly. This verse is basically... Uh, Default theology, Calvinism 101. There's nothing you can do to come to God. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's not you who will activate your regeneration. You, you, you know, you do it and then you will be accepted. For man, it is impossible. That's yeah. it. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. But God can do it. God can do it. That's right. And therefore, he's the one who decides who is saved because he can do it. And not everyone is saved. It's the beautiful good news yeah. that what is impossible for man, God can do. Let's, let's close in prayer on that note. God, we thank you that, um, that you can do what is impossible for us. And I pray that we would have the humility of the children and not the arrogance of the, the rich man. I pray that we would be willing to surrender everything to come to you and that our heart posture before you would be low and humble and codependent. And we thank you that your response to that is the same as those little kids, that you... You embrace us. You welcome us. You show us love and affection. Um, so just keep us in the, the grace of your embrace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.